So we are wrapping up this series, The Game of Life. If you've missed any part of the series, it's been one of my favorite series we've done in a long time. Uh, a lot of people have been asking a lot of questions about it. And so to give you the overview in case you missed it or you forgot, week one is the idea that sometimes life feels like a game and it's always better to win than to not win. Even if you're not competitive, we all want to win, especially in the areas that matter most in life. And so we started with the question, what's the win in this season of life or when it comes to different areas of your life with your family, your finances, your health, your wealth, your spirituality? What's the win? Let's talk about those things. Week two, we talked about sometimes when it comes to winning, there's things that's holding us back. Uh, There's things in our life or maybe people in our life that are holding us back. And so let's acknowledge that. And what do we need to do to move forward? Uh, Last week, we got really personal, some application of when it comes to our families. And in our families, there will be conflict. There'll be conflict with your spouse. There'll be conflict with your kids. How do we approach those things? Is there any part of it that we need to take a look at in ourselves before we blow this thing up? And so we talked about that. And then this, this week uh, is the one, and I told you guys we were going to talk about it, and you still came. And uh, so this week we are talking about um, your money and your stuff. And I know that this is a super sensitive subject, and I promise you it's not what you think. So we're going to have this conversation. Uh, some rules of engagement for today. The first thing you need to know is before I say a single word about it, this is as much for me as anybody else in this room. This is not a you problem. This is an us problem. Um, and so it's something that we all deal with. It's something we all wrestle with at times. And so we need to talk about it. Uh, the Bible talks, especially Jesus, as much about this as anything else. Uh, the other thing is I realize this can be really sensitive. And so what we want to do is rather than me start with my opinions, uh, I want to start with the words of someone much smarter than me, and he is going to paint the picture we're going to see to get into this conversation. And so in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is talking to a large crowd of people. This is called the Sermon on the Mount, a huge crowd of people. It's often considered to be one of his most repeated sermons, and here's what he says. The eye is the lamp of the body. So here's what he means by that, and this is true. Almost everything that you want in life, almost everything you do in life starts with your eyes. You see something. You see something you want. You see something you want to be. You see someone you want. It starts with your eyes. And so the eye is the lamp of the body. And he says this, if your eyes are healthy and you're seeing things the right way in an appropriate way, uh, your whole body will be full of light. So as long as you're seeing things with a clear conscience and a clear mind, you're going to do things well. Okay? But if your eyes are unhealthy, we have eye doctors here, we can hook you up, uh, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if you see things in a way that's not healthy towards you or other people, if you see things in a certain way, um, we all know this. We've seen people, we know people, we might be those people that we saw something, we pursued that thing that we saw, and it caused problems. It caused problems in us, it caused problems in our families, it caused problems in our relationships, it causes problems if our eyes are not healthy. And so your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Then he transitions to one of the most practical teachings, something that is not a new teaching, something that has been around forever, so this is not a new problem. Here's what he says. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. This is not a new problem that we have. This is an old problem. And Jesus has the foresight. And here's what you got to understand. Jesus is the son of God, believed to be God in a bod. Um, he knows the hearts and minds of men. Okay, He experienced the life that we live as men and women. And he recognizes that, look, there's two gods There's money, 
and the pursuit of it. And then there's what God wants for you. Now, we're going to get into what he actually means by this because it's probably different than what you've been taught. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink. Now, here's the thing. Most of us in this room, when we hear this, um, most of us in this room have never in our life worried about what we will eat or drink. We worry about where we're going to eat or drink, right? But we don't worry about if we're going to eat or drink. But that is different. So these are like life things for these people. Or what you will wear or about your body. And then he asked the question that we all have to kind of break down. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? And I love the way that he ends this kind of section. He says, is not life more? Is life not more than fill in the blank? Is life not more than what we wear? Is life not more than what we drive? Is life not more than where we live? Is life not more? Now, the immediate response is we all know, hopefully, that life is more than those things. Okay? And we also know that we shouldn't worry so much about some of these things. I mean, some of us in this room, we worry about what we wear. We worry about what we eat. We worry about our body. We worry about all of these things. Um, we know this is true. We shouldn't worry as much. But, and it's a big, big but here, all right? We live with the realization that while we have food to eat and clothes to wear, we don't even worry about those things. The, the basic kind of foundations of life, most of us don't have to worry about. My problem and your problem is every single day we see everything that we don't have. Just about every day we see a picture or an ad of something we didn't know we need until we saw it. And then our eyes saw it and I've have to have it. For example, have you ever been on Amazon? And what happens when you get on Amazon is you go to buy something and right before you go to hit the checkout button, this little thing will pop up and it says, people who bought this also like, you don't want to be the loser that didn't buy this, right? And all of a sudden, you know, or it's like customers who bought this also bought this. And you're like, I'm buying deodorant. You're offering me a Maserati. Like those are, those are not like things that I think go together. But you don't want to be the loser that didn't buy that, right? Or, or we have advertising that, that basically even uses the language. I mean, your life is not complete unless you have this. And you're like, you're right. My life is not complete unless I have that. And all of a sudden, because we're exposed to this and we see this, all of a sudden there's this thing that kind of creeps in us. The carrot's been dangled in front of us. And now we have to have it. And the problem is, if we're honest, the problem is not what we do have. And we're going to get to this. Listen, we're going to talk about stuff today. Stuff is not necessarily the problem. And the things you don't have are not necessarily the problem. The problem in all of us is the awareness of what we could have. It's this awareness. And this is not, if you're not a religious person or a church person, doesn't matter. This is all of us. Our problem is awareness because here's what awareness does. Awareness fuels discontentment. And as soon as I am aware that I don't have this, all of a sudden I start to get a little discontent with what I do have. And all of a sudden this kind of creeps up within me. 
The reason that we're so discontent is because we're exposed to these things. And, and here's the thing. So all of a sudden now you see what else is out there. So all of a sudden now you're discontent with what you drive. You dis- you're discontent with where you live. You're discontent with how high your ceilings are. You're discontent with how, what the color of your you know, cabinets are. You know, all of these things, whatever it is for you and for me. And again, this is for me. Awareness fuels discontentment. And now all of a sudden we've got this problem. The other thing about this that we have to know is this. Um, when we're discontent with stuff and we, we choose, and it's a choice that we make, to try to fill that discontentment with the stuff, Here's what you need to know, and this is for me as much as anybody. Um, we're never satisfied, are we? And so it's like this idea, like, well, if I get that, then I'm going to be satisfied. No, you're not. Because then there will be something else. There's always going to be a newer model. There's always going to be a thinner TV. There's always going to be a smarter phone. There's always going to be a faster car. It's just the reality we live in. And here's the other thing you have to know, is that when we consume things, so like if we go and we eat, and we eat a big meal to consume our appetite. Um, you may have done this before, we've talked before. You may eat a meal, and at the end of the meal, you say, I'm so full, I'm never gonna eat again. You're a liar. Because three hours later, you're gonna be picking through the leftovers, you're gonna be opening up the microwave, you're gonna be going somewhere else. Listen, here's what you need to know about appetites, and we know this. When you eat something, in case you don't know, it stretches your stomach. It actually grows your appetite not makes it smaller. And the same thing is often true when it comes to purchasing things, when it comes to consuming things. It doesn't shrink the appetite when you fill that appetite. It often expands it. And then we're never fully and finally satisfied. Now, before you start pushing back on me, remember, this is Jesus, not me. You can email him. Good luck. And so here's what he says. He says, the other thing you know about discontentment is this. Not all discontentment, no, not that verse yet. Not all discontentment is bad, okay? So we're approaching discontentment as a bad thing. So I become aware of something I don't have. I end up getting that thing. I think it's gonna fill me and satisfy me. It's not. Um, But here's the other thing is discontentment is not always bad. See, how we know this is if you have a bad habit in your life or you're sick, and let's say you go to the doctor and the doctor says, well, the reason you're sick is because you eat too much sodium or you eat too much of this or this type of thing. Or if you just work out, then you'd be a little bit healthier. So all of a sudden now your discontentment with your body, your discontentment with your bad habit, all of a sudden now you're aware and that discontentment fuels you to do something good. So sometimes discontentment can fill you to do something good. Um, and, and so we, we know that. But there's this other thing that happens sometimes with certain people is that they see a problem in the world They become aware, again, awareness fuels discontentment. They become aware of the problem and all of a sudden they have within them this new hunger that forms. And this new hunger that forms is not like mine and your hunger. The hunger that forms in them is, you know what, this isn't right. It's not right that these kids are living in poverty this way. It's not right that I'm going to throw away a bunch of food and there's people in the world right now that are going to bed hungry. It's not right that there's people that don't have access to clean drinking water. It's not right that there's people out there that don't have access to health care. It's not right that there's people out there that don't have access to good paying and fair paying jobs. It's not fair that people are dying of illnesses that can be cured easily. They just don't have access to that. And so what happens is this awareness that there's these problems fuels this discontentment and all of a sudden these certain people, they choose 
not to make it about themselves, but to do something to help other people. And there's this discontentment with certain people where they're dissatisfied with the status quo and this hunger that comes up inside of them. Their feeling now is somebody ought to do something about this. So discontentment is not always bad. Most of the people that you and I read about and hear about that changed the world, it started with discontentment. So what Paul's going to do today is he's going to say, okay, there's two options. There's the way that everybody else views it, and there's something else. And here's the thing. When it comes to discontentment um, in life, you you can't just decide you're going to be content. Good luck with that one. Like, you can't just decide all of a sudden, now now I'm content. Doesn't work like that. What Paul's going to do, and what I just talked about, is he's going to paint a picture, is the way that you deal with the negative discontentment in your life is you actually, you do something, you replace it with something else, and that thing that you replace it with is a different form of discontentment, a form of discontentment that actually changes things. And so Paul, about 2,000 years ago, he writes this letter to this guy named Timothy, who's in this area where he's helping him start these churches. And and he says this, and we're kind of picking up in the middle of this letter. It's in 1 Timothy. Um, These are letters, you know, we call them books, but they're actually letters. And he makes this statement. He says this. He says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So let's break that apart. Super sentence, easy sentence. But but godliness with contentment is great gain. So he says that godliness kind of in this contentment kind of paired together is great gain. So here's the thing. We all want to win. We all want to be winners. We all want to have the best life. So what is this great gain we're going to get? So a couple of words we have to break apart. First of all, we already know what contentment is. Contentment is I'm satisfied with what I have. We have to get to a place where we learn to be satisfied, okay, to some degree with the life that we've been given. But this word godliness, um, it's interesting because godliness, um, the way that the language is used, what godliness means is God's likeness in you. So if you ever hear people say they want to be godly or godliness, it literally just kind of means God's likeness in you. So the question is, how can I be like God? And so that's a great question. And it's a question that actually is not that difficult to answer. The New Testament actually answers that question. So when the writers of the New Testament come along, they've experienced Jesus either firsthand or they've seen the fruits of people that experience Jesus. And Jesus comes along. And when Jesus comes along, he paints us a new picture of what God is actually like because there's all these misconceptions in their world, just like there's misconceptions in our world of what God is actually like. And a lot of us, we have these weird views of God. So Jesus kind of paints this new picture of God. And John is later trying to describe what God is like through the lens that he gets through Jesus. And the only thing that he can come up with, the best thing that he describes it is, is he eventually gets to the point he just says, God is love. Now, Paul wants to help us understand this. And so Paul takes it even further and he explains to us what love is. And he says, love is not selfish or jealous or envious. Love is basically not about you. So when you stood in front of somebody one day or you have before and you stood in front of them in front of a room full of people and you made wedding vows, I'm hoping you included love in those vows. And love is the idea that I'm going to give something for you. It's not about me anymore. Love is always defined by what you can give. And, and so the Bible paints this picture and it says, so God so loved the world that he gave. And by the way, that's the gospel, if you don't know it, is that there is actually a God that gives to us. And so God demonstrated for us what it looks like. And so when it comes to godliness, the definition that we should see when we see godliness is about the idea of engaging in the world to which it benefits other people. It's in which we sacrifice and give of 
ourselves. And so Paul says something that we really don't like. Um, he's going to kind of say, like, if you want to be like God, what you have to understand is learning to be content is this idea of you're content with where you are, but part of where you are is also living this life in which you're giving of yourself to other people, which we don't like because we're Americans, right? And see, what most of us do, and let's just call it a spade a spade, most of us, the question is, what can I get? Not what do I give? And so he says, okay, so let's finish this thought because there's a lot of arguing. There's a lot of wrestling already within us. And he says, so let me paint this picture for you. He goes on, he says, for we brought, verse seven, nothing into this world and we can take nothing out of it. Now on surface, you know that's true. You brought nothing in, you take nothing with you. But the idea that he's painting is actually a bigger idea than just the, the, the openness of it. See, here's the thing. Think about how all of us in this room got here, okay? You were born as a baby, all right? All right? And so you're born as a baby, and there's a couple of things about babies. First of all, babies don't bring anything with them, right? They're just born, they're, they're naked, and they all look funny, right? They're just, they're just, they're just here, um, but one thing that we do know about babies is that when babies are born, um, we value them, don't we? Like for a mom, there's nothing more valuable than her child. Now think about this. You are most loved and valued when you owned nothing. You are almost more cherished when you couldn't do anything, right? You're just, you're just here and Paul says, you brought nothing into this world, but you were immediately given value and worth, and it had nothing to do with your stuff. And then we grow up as an adult, and somehow we equate our value in this world with the stuff that we have. And then he says, the contrary is not only did you not come into this world with anything, um, you don't get to take any of it with you. Like, none of it. Right? You're leaving with Nothing, which brings up a very disturbing question, and I hope it's something you wrestle with. So if I come into this world with nothing, and I leave with nothing, and, and here's the thing, you do leave something, you leave your stuff, you don't take any of it with you, it stays. So here's the question, if all I'm leaving right now is, is stuff, um, besides your stuff, what will you leave behind? Like, just beside your stuff, like, is, is there anything that you're actually going to leave behind? Here's a harder way to ask that. Um, will the world have gained anything because you were here? Will your community have gained anything because you were here? And here's the real hard one. Will your family have gained anything because you were here? Or are you just going to leave a bunch of stuff? And then he taps into this thing that Jesus has already told us. He says, but if we have food and clothing, we, we, we will be content with that. And, and like, it's a hard, you know, it, in this moment, you're like, yeah, okay, I get it. But it's a hard one. But we have to realize, and this is true, um, there are many people in the world today that would be content if they had food and clothing. 
And there are many more people throughout human history, including many of Paul's audience, that they would just be content if they had food and clothing. And so Paul says, here's what you have to do. You have to learn to be content with that. Now, what you have to understand about the guy that wrote those words, Paul, um, is Paul, before he became Paul, was a guy named Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee, and he was a religious leader in their community. Now, the thing about religious leaders in their community is not much different than what most of you think about religious leaders in our community. Um, They were wealthy. And they lived good lives. It it was like an abusive system. I know you're poor, but just keep giving to the temple so I can live off that. And and so Paul, when he kind of jumped ship and went from being a Pharisee to being a follower of Jesus, he gave up a lot. He gave up prestige, he gave up reputation, and he gave up a comfy, lush lifestyle. But see, what happened is Paul's um, awareness of the world shifted. And his discontentment shifted from the things to something that he thought his life was worth giving for. And so the question is, well, what did Paul actually leave behind? Because so he, he did. He actually took this image and he said, okay, I'm not going to tell you to do this because that's not fair. Um, I'm, I'm actually going to live this out. And, and so what did Paul leave behind? Because Paul, at the end of the day, he decided, when I go, I'm just not leaving some stuff. I'm going to leave something that's of value. And so what did Paul leave behind? Well, Paul left behind a series of letters, and I don't know if you understand this unless you study history, they didn't just shape the church, they shaped Western culture. He left behind a series of writings that changed the way we see the world. And then he also left behind some theology that cost him greatly but changed the world and the way the world viewed God to eventually the point that it had changed the Roman Empire, which eventually shifted into Europe, which then eventually came over here, which is why all of us are here. So Paul gave up a lot, but he also left a lot. And so here's what you have to understand in case you miss it. Um, The problem is not stuff. The problem is what you've made your life about. And then he says this, verse 9. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into their ruin and destruction. Now, we're going to pretend like I'm not talking about you for a second, but we are. And um, we all know people that have made terrible choices and done harmful things to themselves and other people in, in this desire to get rich, right? Turn on the news, watch a documentary. Like, I mean, all these these stories of these people that plunged themselves into ruin and destruction and and they fell into a trap of they made this the most important thing in their life and and they did harmful things. We've all seen this and it came with all kinds of problems. And so the Bible says that we're all on this verge of if we make this the main thing and and stay with me because we're going to see how it ends. If we make this the main thing, we're all on the verge of falling into a trap. And so the question is, well, what are those traps? And the answer is, we don't know because then it wouldn't be a trap. If you knew what the trap was, it's not a trap. And so some of us in this room, we might be on the verge of falling into a trap that's going to cause ourselves and the people we love great pain. But we don't know, unfortunately, and this is the hard part, until we fall into that trap. And so Paul says, listen, that sometimes these things are dangerous and sometimes these things, they cause problems. 
And if you don't believe Paul and you don't like the way that he said it, maybe you'll believe the great Christopher Wallace and what he said. That's notorious B.I.G. He says this, I don't know what they want from me. It's like the more money we come across, the more problems we see. And so he says this, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, there's an important distinction here in what Paul says that some of us mess up. Paul doesn't say money is the root of all kinds of evil because money can do great things. Money can actually help solve the world's problems. Money can actually help solve your problems. So it's not money. So money's like this neutral thing. Like money can be used for good or it can be used for bad. The problem is, is that when we love money so much that we're willing to do evil things. See, here's the problem with all of us in this room, me included, maybe most of all. You can't see jealousy in the mirror. You can't see greed in the mirror. And you can't see love of money in the mirror. Now, just so you know, other people can see it but you can't see it in yourself sometimes. The other thing with this is when it comes to love. Um, See, when you love something, you're willing to do crazy things for it, aren't you? Like you're willing to go, like you're willing to, if you're like me, you're willing to watch movies and shows you would never watch, but you'll watch them because you love somebody. You'll go places, you'll do things you, because you love somebody. And so you're willing to do crazy things. So here's the question. What are you willing to do for money? Because we all know people who have done things, crazy things, harmful things, illegal things. We know people who have put themselves and other people in jeopardy for this love. And so the question is, what will you be willing to do for money? Who are you willing to hurt for it? And is there anybody at home that feels like they're competing with this love? They're competing with your love of stuff. And if you answer any of those questions in an uncomfortable way, is it possible that you've stepped into a trap? He goes on to say that some of them have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. And then Paul kind of turns the corner and we're like, thank goodness, Paul, because this is really getting down on us. Okay, he says, but you, man of God or woman of God, this is how they talked back then, flee from all of this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. So here's what he's saying. He's saying, okay, back to that concept. Um, you can't just say all of a sudden you're content. He says you've got to replace it with something. And so what he says is what you need to be passionate about, not so much the money piece, but being a person of righteousness, godliness, faithfulness, love, endurance, and gentleness. And so you, 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 you pursue those things more. You allow the, your awareness of the injustice in the world and the injustice of people's lives around you to fuel that. Um, and all of a sudden now you have to decide that my chief pursuit is not going to be money anymore. It's going to be something else. And, and here's what he says that the chief pursuit should be. He says it should, should, be, should be God, right? So then he says this. Command those who are rich. So this is all great theoretically, but command those who are rich. So let me define rich for you because you might be confused on who. Because if we're talking about rich people, we're all like, yeah, tell the rich people. Bad news for you. Um, 
Here, let me define rich for you. If you get a package in the mail this week from Amazon with your name on it, and you don't know what's in it until you open it, (laughs) you're doing pretty good, right? Or if you go into Target this week, and you walk out with more than just the one thing you went in there for, or ladies, you walk out with everything but the one thing you walked in there for, (laughs) if you have money in your ashtray right now, If you have a car and that car lives in its own house at your house, you're probably doing pretty good. He says, command those who are rich in this present world. And and you think that he's going to say not to be rich, but but what we're going to see is is money's not the problem. And honestly, hear me out, your stuff is not the problem. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain. Because see, this is reality. No matter what you fall into in in the economic bracket, money is uncertain, right? We all keep hearing about a recession, right? I mean, it's just like every day we hear about this, we hear about this, and we're feeling it. Like if one more person posts any post on any social media about the cost of eggs, I'm just going (laughs) to blow up a computer. Like, okay, we get it. They cost a lot of money right now, but... But it's because we put our hope in things that are so uncertain. We just don't know how it's going to play out. And so he says, don't allow it to be the chief pursuit. He says, but to put their hope in God. And here's the line that you may not know exists. Who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, there's this misconception that God doesn't want you to have a good life. There's this misconception that God doesn't want you to have a fun life. There's this misconception all around that like, in order to follow God, you just got to be miserable, got to give all your money to the church, you got to live in a sackcloth and you know, live by a van by a river. You know? I mean, <laughs> he says, God is providing this stuff for your enjoyment. The Bible tells us that Jesus came to give us life and life to the full. There is a misconception that God doesn't want you to enjoy life, and that's simply not true. He created it. And then what's even more amazing is when God created man, which is me and you, he not only created the world, which is pretty awesome if you've ever seen it, um, he gave us the ability to create ourselves. So he created, then he gave us the foresight and knowledge to be able to create ourselves. And so we've built this world because he gave us the ability to. And the world is a pretty good place to live. So God's not against having stuff, and he's not against enjoyment. He wants you to have stuff. He just doesn't want your stuff to have you. See, some of us in this room, we've become slaves to our stuff. And the problem with being a slave to your stuff, as we've talked about before, the problem with having anything allowed to be master in your life is that as a Jesus follower, you already have a master. What did Jesus say? You can't follow God in money. Now, here's what's important to note about that. Um, There are people that can follow God and still get a lot of money. You see it all the time. But it's really hard to make money your number one goal and still get God. So Paul says, I want you to enjoy what God has given you, um, but see, you should enjoy it, and I don't want you to be so dissatisfied by what you don't have that you actually can't enjoy what you do have. It's like God's saying, you know, you're so driven by what's next that you can't pause and enjoy what he's already put in your hands. So what do we do? He says, okay, so if you want to fight this, if if you want to understand this, he says, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Why is it that we're so 
we just nail it into preschoolers and kindergartners' heads that they have to share, and we don't tell it to 20 and 30-year-olds, right? And I'm not picking on 20 and 30-year-olds, I'm just being honest. Like, when we're kids, we're told the best thing you can do is share, and then we become adults, it's like all that just goes like right out the window. You see, the other thing is rich people, which is me and you, um, we need to be told what to do. And here's why we need this practical application. Um, because rich people like me and you can become so busy doing whatever we want to do. We're busy because we have the resources to be busy. The reality is you can spend a month of your life, you can spend two months of your life, some of us will spend seasons or years of our life and never do good for anybody else because you have so many opportunities to do good for yourself. And it's not that you're a bad person, you just have all these opportunities because you've been given so much. The Bible says it's not healthy. It says to tell them to do good. See, see here, here's what you need to know. It's okay to look at somebody and say, man, they've just got a lot. As long as it's followed up with, yeah, but she also does a lot. It's okay. You know, he has a lot of stuff and a lot of money. Yeah, but, you know, he, he, he gives a lot too. And so he says, teach those who are rich in this world to give and to do good with what they've been given. They can still enjoy it. That's what the verse before said. But they also is this awareness that there's other people in the world and other opportunities in the world outside of themselves. In this way, Paul goes on to say, he's kind of refocusing this. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of life that is truly life. Here's what he means by that. This is all an invitation. It's not a command. It's an invitation. An invitation to have a life free of worry. Jesus says, like, why do you worry about what you will eat and what you will drink? Why do you worry about that? See, so many of us in this room, we worry. You worry about how you look, how you look in that. Are you wearing the best model? Do you have the best model? Like, you know, you're afraid somebody's going to make fun of you because you don't have the 10. You're still on an eight. You know, all of these things. And you have this worry. And what he says is if you are willing to just put all of that aside, it's an invitation to a life free of anxiety. How about this one? Free of the pressure to keep up. Do you ever feel that one? To keep up? Free of the pressure to worry about all of those things. And here's why he can say this is life. So one of the things that I get to do um, is funerals. And uh, here's what I always tell people and I'll remind people of. um, The value of a life is always measured by how much you give. It's always measured by that. See, every funeral that I've ever done, so I'll meet with the family and I'll sit with them for about 30 or 40 minutes and, and I'll ask them questions. I'll be like, just tell me about this person. Just tell me about their life. Just tell me who they were. Because, you know, as we're talking about them, these are the final words that most people are ever going to say about you publicly. So, so we want to honor them and we want to be on. And so you're sitting there with the loved ones of this person that's passed. And at some point in this conversation, it always comes up. They'll say things like, they were so kind. They were so giving. They would do anything for anybody. And it always comes down to that. And here's the catch. They say that every single time, even if it's not true. Because what they don't want to say, and we all realize we have this awareness, what you don't want to say at the end of somebody's life is, 
Well, they had a nice boat. Man, their bourbon collection was unreal. She did look really good in those hills, right? That car. See, we all know at the end, the value of a life is ultimately determined and measured by how much was given away. And so if we know that's true, why wouldn't you live like that now? Godliness with contentment is of great gain. Do not be deceived. Do not step off into the ravine. Do not be plunged into some horrible trap that's going to cost you relationally, financially. The reality is, and it wasn't for me, we've all been warned. Awareness of what there is that we don't have always fuels discontentment. And discontentment in this is not life. It's a prison. And so what we have to be is aware of a different type of discontentment. A discontentment of believing in a life that's actually possible. Life that's truly life. Paul writes these words so that we can find freedom. So my hope is that we all choose to win the game of life, not by collecting and hoarding, not by consuming, not by living in fear and anxiety, not by living in the pressure to keep up, but by giving of ourselves, of our time, of our resources. And in doing so, we become like our Father who in heaven, who gives so generously to all of us so that we might actually enjoy life. Let's pray.